0: Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly chess interview show where we talk with accomplished chess players, authors, and personalities about their lives, their careers, and how to improve at chess. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters and by Chessable.com. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We have a guest I am really excited to talk to this week, just my kind of guest. He is an international master of chess who retired from competitive chess at the age of 23 in 1993. But before he did, he built quite a resume in the chess world and accumulated a lot of stories. In 1981, at the age of 11 years and 10 months, he became the youngest chess master in U.S. history. He had that record until 1994. He was the U.S. junior champion in 1988. And he parlayed that into tying for first in the U.S. championship in 1989 to 90. He tied with uh, Roman Gingisvili and a certain Yasser Sarawan. But these days, he's, he's, he's an associate professor in the philosophy department at the University of Alabama. But luckily, he has not left the chess world behind. He is out with a book this year with new in chess publishing called The Best I Saw in Chess game stories instruction from an Alabama prodigy who became US champion. I read the book and I loved it and I am excited to bring our guest in. So Dr. and I am Stu Rachels. How are you?
1: <laughs> I'm great. Thanks for having me, Ben.
0: You're you're welcome. And I should I should admit right off, listeners, we had a few technical issues. So we switched over to Skype from the Uh, podcast platform I've been using, but hopefully we won't have any more issues and we're good to go. Stu sounds good to me. So, with that out of the way, Stu, let's dive into the book. I loved it. And on our first take before the internet conspired against us, you were just starting to explain uh, how this project came to fruition. Do you mind sharing that with our listeners?
1: Oh, not at all. But uh, thank you first for reading the book. You know, when you write a book, it's a sort of a solitary experience, and it's um, so such a joy for me now to have people actually reading it yeah and I, I kind I, of backed into the uh, I kind of backed into the project uh, at, at first all I did was go into a closet and get some old shoe boxes with score sheets in them just wanted to remember some of my old games and then I thought I'd you know write something up for a web page or something like that and it just kept going and going and <laughs> eight years later I've got a book
0: that's amazing so at what point did you know it was going to be a book
1: um, it was probably uh, a year after I started, <clears throat> but uh, I knew it was going to be a serious project when um, uh, when I had to get a an assistant to uh, to look at the engines. I, I, I had to sort of learn about twenty first century chess and just how incredible these computer programs were. and uh, And I, I thank Dave Gertler for uh, doing a whole ton of computer work for me. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I like a lot of your sort of uh, tongue-in-cheek references to to the engines that you check on on all your old games. So as you did catch up with with what has changed with technology and chess, what, what surprised you most?
1: <clears throat> well, yeah, I went through this sort of grandpa experience of being amazed at sort of how good the machines were and how bad my own analysis was. But as soon as I got used to that, I really thought that uh, the computers reveal the beauty of chess. When I, when I stopped playing in 1993, it was just on the cusp of, um, you know, computers coming out and, and being good, and I thought it would be bad for the game, uh, but I just, I just found it wonderful uh, looking at their analysis, and I always did the analysis first myself, so then when you see the things that, that you could not see, uh, it's even more spectacular.
0: Yeah. And I know you've got tons of tons of chess analysis in this book. For, for any listeners wondering, there's loads of diagrams and the book is available, of course, in paper form. It, it's taken a while to make its way to the States as a lot of new and chess books have recently, but I read mine on Forward Chess and it's also available on Kindle. Um, so, but with regard to the, the many chess diagrams, uh, game snippets, full games that are in the book, was there any one game that stood out in terms of a, a discovery you made from the engine?
1: Oh, well, there are a lot of those. I'll say that um, Dave Gertler was going through my games, you know, the ones I thought maybe were worthy of publication or parts of them were. And I was very, um, very anxious, very tense to get his uh, results back. And uh, I don't know if you've had the experience where there's several things that could be stressing you out and you don't know which it is until it resolves and you feel so much better.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so there was one game that I played uh, against Kyle Farrell when I was 11. And this was a really, there was a really nice combination in this game. And as soon as the computer confirmed that the combination was sound, I suddenly felt much better about everything.
0: Was that the one that you said maybe the best game by an 11-year-old ever played? Well, yeah,
1: not very modest I mean, but <laughs> just just at the just at the time. Okay. Uh, prodigies have been prodigies have been getting younger and stronger and so I'm not uh, comparing myself to more recent players.
0: Yeah, and in your defense, I will say you are you are quite modest in many points in the book, but that that book is that game is just a particular point of pride and I was pretty impressed with it, I have to say. Oh, thank you. Uh, I'm uh yeah, I, I still couldn't play a game like that. So um yeah, no, it, I, I Sorry go ahead.
1: Oh no, I, I doubt I don't think I could play another one, but go ahead.
0: Yeah, well that makes me that's that's what I was gonna ask you is so you took on this project and it's really I commend you for spending so many years on it. That's I mean the chess world is is in debt to you for not just kind of mailing it in or doing a, a half assed job. We're we're glad you took your time with it. But So you weren't that up on engines, but how up were you on chess generally when you got back into this project? Do you play Blitz on the internet? Are you following the big tournaments? What was your sort of day-to-day relationship like with chess after stepping away?
1: Right. I was briefly addicted to internet uh, chess on the ICC in the early 2000s, but uh, once I started caring a lot about my rating, (laughs) I realized it wasn't very healthy. And... All I had really done is just keep up with the very top tournaments, uh, you know, reading new in chess and, uh, you know, just following the, you know, Kramnik and non Carlson events, that sort of thing.
0: Okay. So not necessarily reading on a day-to-day basis, but certainly when the world championship comes around and stuff like that, you would be watching.
1: Well, in, in the, the top players generally,
0: okay.
1: when, when, when Kasparov retired, I felt like a real loss because I love his game so much. And now there are, you know, a bunch of players, a dozen players who are <laughs> cast off light. So there's lots of great chess at the top.
0: Yeah. And of course, you've got so many stories in this book, but getting to play Kasparov and Simos twice, chief among them. So we don't want to spoil all the content that you have, Stu, but, but could, you, could you tell us a little bit about uh, those experiences?
1: Oh, yeah. There's nothing like being around Kasparov. It's sort of like being around uh, what you would think of a rock star. There's, um, you know, the hanger-ons and the drama and the film crew. And uh, so, yeah, I played uh, Kasparov twice in 83 uh, when he was the candidate finalist when he was 20 years old, and then in uh, 88 when he was 25 and, and was world champion. And uh, both t- now these are just clock signals but um, in both events he uh, he sort of pitched a fit <laughs> at one point. So that's that's part of those stories.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, not not the only one to have such stories about Kasparov. Um, he's you know one of uh, an amazing player and seems to have mellowed out a little bit in uh, in his older years. But yeah, he um, he he was known you not not super unusual and Stu, in addition to reading your book last night i checked out american gambit the uh youtube well it's the film that you referenced that's available on youtube uh in your book Mm -hmm. that was uh that was really interesting
1: yeah and for some reason i i didn't watch that film for about 20 years after it was made uh partly because my uh my experience in that simo it was such a painful game for me because i was beating casco off with black and uh and then i got mated uh but it was uh it was yeah i really enjoyed that documentary
0: yeah so for for any listeners who aren't familiar um it is a documentary uh mentioned that he played kasparov twice and this was the second one it was six top young american players um including uh patrick wolf and alex fishbein um and and a few others. Uh, and they all played Kasparov in a clock simul. And it's really just an amazing slice of history. Uh, and it's for free available on YouTube. Although I don't know if you had this experience, too. But I had trouble finding the full version online. And I had a few audio issues. But I think I saw the whole thing. Did you find it? I know you. Ha- I noticed later you had a link to a YouTube. Did you find a clean version online? Or were you kind of piecing it together as well when you watched?
1: uh what i found was good it was just in three parts so for sort of three 10 minute segments but it was fine
0: okay so i'll maybe um i'll i'll pull the link from your um from your book and put it in the show description i definitely recommend it uh for for any interested listeners and it was cool the story you told in the book of uh Kasparov being uh relatively impressed with you from the first simul that you played
1: oh uh yeah that's that's right it you know it didn't last too long but um Uh, I was pretty good when I was, you know, 14.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You're too modest. Um, So, again, I'm just curious how you contextualize this because, I mean, being a a philosophy professor, it's pretty distant from the chess world. So we get that you you only kind of had one eye on the chess world. Uh, since you retired, but how often do you reflect on, on your chess before, before you started writing this book, how often would you reflect on something like playing Kasparov, or of course you write about, you know, uh, playing Anand and analyzing with uh, Tony Miles and Norwood and, you know, so many others that you cross paths with. How often do you think about uh, all those um, amazing experiences?
1: Uh, all the time. Uh it's a sort of a mental habit, you know. You've got a, a chessboard in your head, and um, one one reason that I uh, I went to my closet to look at my score sheets is I was finding that I, whenever I would think about my games, it was always the same five or six games.
0: So, which which ones was it?
1: Oh, um, it would be. Uh, my game against Kudrin in the 89 U.S. Championship, maybe the games against Kasparov. But, uh, I mean, I I remember, you know, most of my games, but if I'm just thinking off the top of my head, I'd sort of forgotten, you know, the the hundred other (laughs) very interesting games I was in.
0: Yeah, and when you pull up these games, were you able at all to remember your thought processes? Were you able to piece that together as you look at these games from when you were, you know, uh, adolescent?
1: Absolutely. It is. It was really striking to me just how many memories score sheets can elicit. Wow. I found myself right, right back in it. Now, I I did have the um, I did have the habit that when I was analyzing without the computer, uh, I would always look at the position from my opponent's point of view because I thought that my eyes would be fresher and not just falling back into the way I was thinking during the game.
0: And do you think, did you find that to be helpful?
1: Oh, it was probably helpful. But uh, again, the story um, the with uh, doing your own analysis and then having it checked is just, um, just the, the incredible rampage that the computer does to human analysis.
0: Yeah, I know that you're friendly with Andy Soltis. And I've had him on the show a couple of times. And one of the things we talked about is he wrote a column for Chess Life magazine, uh, I think it was early this year, where where he called it the half life of truth, just about the idea that, you know, people have argued forever about like the objective soundness of some tall sacrifice or, or whatever it may be. And you just wonder at some point if it, if it even matters anymore, you know, whether whether if it was enough to scare your opponent, like, shouldn't that be enough? Or does it matter if you if a move is really sound? What do you what do you think, Stu?
1: Well, yeah, John Nunn wrote a, a column or maybe it was um, a few pages from a book uh, before the computers got good. And he said, suppose that we had computers, even if this is impossible, that it completely solved the game of chess. Uh, how would that really help us? You know, what, what effect would that have on, on human play? And so there's, there's a lot of that. Um, you know, the, the top players, uh, you know, they spend hours and hours a day, you know, going through computer lines of openings. And so, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to do what they can do to make use of the computers, but, uh, the rest of us, it's a, more of a limited tool.
0: Okay. And, So your friend that helps you with the engines, um, I'm sorry, remind me, I know you reference him in the book as well, but remind me. Oh, sure.
1: Oh, Dave Gertler.
0: So did Dave actually show you how to operate one or did you just totally keep that separate from your own analysis? Uh,
1: I totally kept it separate. I I thought the book would be better if I tried to do the stuff myself and then I could write from the point of view of having, you know, my misconceptions corrected. Instead of just seeing the perfect line straight away, you know, you're, you're under some illusion with the computers that they give you a line and, you know, it looks good and seems like something you might have thought of. But 95% of the time, uh, you're not going to think of it. So, uh, Dave and I had this, um, uh, this procedure where basically I would send him my analysis. He would run it through uh, Houdini or Stockfish. And then he would write back uh, corrections and... I would um, then, you know, ask questions about them, and so it was kind of a, a give-and-take thing. And <laughs> the thing that I, I thank Dave the most for was when I started on this project, I declared that I was not going to use <laughs> engines because I thought it just took away the fun of doing the analysis. Uh, but then Dave took a complicated game of mine against John Fedorowitz and, you know, showed me what Houdini had to say I realized that it would you know, be ridiculous not to not to use this resource.
0: Yeah, I think you settled on a, a good solution because the the books um, that that are like strictly an en- engine analysis, I do find them somewhat overwhelming at times, and and honestly, not uh, not all that helpful for my, for my chest. So it, to me, I, I think, I think it's a good approach to actually share what you're thinking, but just make sure you don't have any like egregious wrong analysis in there.
1: Uh, no. I mean, when I look at cast off my great predecessor books, I think, is there any human being who's been through, you know, 10% of this analysis?
0: Yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit much in my opinion. I mean, I love the historical context in those books, but yeah, the the variations are, are just too deep and especially from Kasparov himself, like he doesn't, he practically is an engine. So it would be plenty if he just wrote his own thoughts, you know?
1: Yeah, or, or you know, wrote his own book and and then use the computer to do corrections. Yeah. Uh, You know, one of of my favorite uh, writers is Yasser Sirwan, but I I wish Yasser would write a book using the engines. Uh, That would be really great.
0: Okay. Yeah. And you've got some fun, fun Yasser stories in there. Do you, would you like to to share one or two? Yasser is always a, a fan favorite as you're probably aware.
1: Oh yeah. Yasser is a, a delightful person to, uh, uh, to be around. Do you have any, um, uh, I don't know. There are a whole bunch of Yasser I mean, okay. I, I, lo-
0: I loved the one you told about what he told you about Fisher.
1: <laughs> oh, right. Right. So this was after Fisher's uh, rematch with Spasti in 1992, and uh, uh, Sveti, Stefan, is that right?
0: Um, uh, for, forgive me,
1: <laughs> uh, but this this was um, this was stories he was telling at the U.S. Championship after he he met Fisher, and the thing is, none of us uh, had ever been around Fisher. You know, you you have to be pretty old at that point. And, um, of course we all knew, you know, tons of Fisher stories and, uh, how, you know, Fisher seems to have some psychoses and, um, some, uh, real, uh, pronounced bees in his bonnet. And, uh, yeah, got along with Fisher very well, and he said, he said, Bobby is absolutely sane. There are just four topics you have to avoid with him. Avoid these topics and he's absolutely sane. First of all, the world championship title. He still thinks he's world champion. Uh, uh, Second, um, uh, the Jews. He hates the Jews. Uh, Third, the Russians. He hates the Russians. And fourth, uh, Time Warner. (laughs) Just those four subjects. Avoid those four subjects. He's completely sane. That's so funny. Yeah, we just saw the Time Warner thing. I mean, there's a story behind it john donaldson was telling me but it just seemed to come out of nowhere <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah john donaldson of course also has been on the show and told a, told a lot of great fisher stories being one of the leading uh fisher historians but yeah that that was very funny and you have a lot of color on uh on yasser himself his personality uh, as well um so i mean there again there's so many stories in the book but just to pick your brain a little bit uh more Stu. so what are your most most cherished memories in terms of um your your brushes with all of these uh chess legends
1: oh gosh uh, i'll just say one thing generally you you mentioned uh, that i took a a good long time to to write the book uh, i i do think in a book like this you've um your first duty as an author has to be to the reader you know, if if there was something that I felt sort of awkward about putting in or something like this, I just, I just put it in. Uh, you know, I was trying not to, you know, shortchange the reader by, you know, omitting names or that sort of thing. For, for example, um, I, it, there's a section where I go sort of through legends that I knew.
0: My favorite uh, from section, Nidor. of course.
1: Yeah. Oh, 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 thank you very much. And there's only one player that I just had nothing but bad things to say about. That was uh, Samuel Rushevsky. And th- the thing is, when I look, when I think back about all that I've read about Ruschevsky, I-, I can piece together that sort of nobody liked him, but, you know he's a very unpleasant fellow, but for some reason, no one will just say that outright. You know, they'll tell some story about, uh, you know, he's, he's playing Robert Byrne and, you know, they're both in time trouble and Burns' flag falls and, you know, Wyshevsky's wife stands up in the audience and says, I claim the game on behalf of my husband. <laughs> or, or you'll have Kotov talking about how Wyshevsky was in time pressure and making these ridiculous little jumps in his chair. Uh, <clears throat> but anyway, I guess being out of the chess culture, it makes it easier for me uh, just to be blunt about things. Now, you've asked me what my favorite memories are. So I'm telling you, like the worst memories, <laughs> right? Being around Sam Rischewski. Um but um, uh, gosh, all the time I spent around Nidorf, uh, Spassky, Kasparov. I'll I'll retell one story from the book uh, that I'm I was pleased with just because I got a big laugh, and uh, it was like all the top U.S. players were in the room, and so was Tony Miles because he'd. Uh, rented a post office box in New York city right. in order to meet the residency requirement for the U S championship. And this was at the end in 1990. And, uh, Karp, uh, Yasser, Sirwan had just uh, defeated Karpoff in a game in Sweden. And in 1990, uh, beating Kasparov or Karpoff was so rare that just to win one game from them was a cause of uh, celebration. And so we were kind of gathered around in this hotel room, and uh, Yasser was talking about uh, beating Karpov. And he said, um, and someone said, well, uh, how was Karpov's sportsmanship after the game? And Yasser said, oh, he was, he was very nice. Uh, he sat at the board. He kept uh, analyzing with me for a long time. And twenty Miles uh, was probably the only other person in the room who had won an individual game off of Karpov. And Miles said, uh, I, I don't remember Karpoff being gracious when he lost to me. And I then piped up and said, well, Tony, uh, Yasser didn't beat Karpoff with one A6. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, Tony.
0: So,
1: yeah, yeah, everyone, Tony Tony got a real, real pleasure thinking about that. Now, at the time, everyone would have known this game because, you know, Karpoff, Miles, you know, E4, A6. By d four b five and you know Karpov loses with white against this.
0: It's it is amazing and of course now uh, Magnus is kind of the only one who will will play these sort of whimsical <laughs> lines, um, which is a you know it's not quite the same uh, when you are the world champion playing it in a online rapid game as opposed to taking it playing it against a former world champion when when you get your shot to play him as a you know uh, non world champion grandmaster.
1: Well, I, I must say, Magnus plays these stupid openings really beautifully. Like 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 watching him, he really he really understands things about these bad openings uh, that other people don't. And of course, um, uh, you know, half of Magnus's strategy in chess is just to get the other player, you know, out of out of book, out of theory, uh, so he can then you know outplay them.
0: Yeah, it it's something to behold. So, Stu, um we'll get to the questions from uh Patreon supporters of the podcast in a minute, but but what what you just mentioned about Magnus made me think of a question from your friend Ben Feingold. So, he's been on the show a couple times and um so I messaged him when he, when you were coming on and he's got a few questions for you too. But one of them is Uh-oh. uh <laughs> I asked him for some some funny stories, but he didn't deliver. He 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 kept it um he kept it more philosophical in nature in terms of the questions, but one of them was um, uh, who do you think is a better player, Magnus or Kasparov?
1: Well, I, I do agree with what Andy Soltis said that if they were playing each other, then Kasparov would win 1985 chess and Magnus would win 2020 chess. I mean, you know, Kasparov's openings were so fantastic But now, you know, all the players have got the engines and, you know, they're crunching this all the time. Uh, I I will say when you compare players from different eras, it's very important how people match up against their peers because, you know, chess players get better. Like each generation is a little better than the last. You know, just sort of, you sort of build on chess understanding over time. And uh, Kasparov was more dominant over his peers than uh, Magnus is. It, it doesn't mean he, he plays better. Uh, I can't do any better than the, um, than the rating system. And, uh, you know, Magnus has been in the 2880s and Castor off in the 2850s. Well, I guess Magnus is a tiny bit better, but uh, I certainly wouldn't be able to tell that looking at their games.
0: Yeah. It's a tough call. Yeah. Their ratings, it, it, I agree. It doesn't do much justice. I mean, some people have suggested that the best way to judge is by comparing them to their peers, but even that's a little tricky because both of them seem to always retain the world championship, but do so narrowly, you know, it's not like Kasparov oh, always managed to beat Karpov, but they were so close on uh, their lifetime score is so close.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There was just a, there's a big drop off between Karpov and then, you know, players three through 10 in the world. and, and, and then, by the way, something that, that Ben Feingold put very well once is um, when you look at someone like Morphe, who probably dominated his peers more than any chess player ever has, um, there was just uh, so few players then. Uh, so little was known that, again, it's, it's, it's like you want to compare to one's peers but also uh, have some measure of how many peers one had.
0: Yeah, it's a good point, and, and we'll never really know the answer. So, when I reached out to Ben, the first thing he said was that he he knew you, he's known you longer than I've been alive. Which, um, <laughs> which I think I think gave me too gave me too much credit because I was born in seventy seven. I'm forty three. So you guys didn't know each other when you were eight, did you, Stu?
1: <laughs> no, no, we we were we were twelve, I think, when we met.
0: Okay, yeah. So he probably thought I was uh, I younger than I am, which uh, would be nice. <laughs> um, but I, I would like to flip th- to flip it since I asked Ben about you. Th- and Feingold, of course, as you, I'm sure you're well aware, is quite popular in the chess world. Everyone has come to appreciate his humor. Um, so do you have any crazy Feingold stories you could share with us?
1: Uh, yeah, I will, actually. I'll, I'll share one with you that was not uh, in my book. Uh, by the way, did you uh, did you hear that Howard Stern recently said that Ben was like eternally um uh entertaining or something like that
0: that's amazing i know that uh dan heisman taught uh howard stern for a while and he's got quite an affinity for chess but that's that's quite a shout out that ben got
1: okay so okay so here's here's my ben story It's it's not in the book so ben is uh he's naturally very muscular right he and i are exactly the same age uh but you know you know, to, for me to want to, you know, arm wrestle with him or play a game of mercy or something, uh, I mean, the, the guy is very, very naturally muscular. And um, once Ben said to me, we were about 16 years old, Ben said to me, okay, punch me in the stomach as hard as you can. And I I gave him a tap and he said, no, 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 it's harder, really do it. And, you know, I hit him a little harder in the stomach you know still it's you know hurting my fist more than it's hurting his midsection and Ben again said no no I really want you to do it okay so I said to him Ben you really want me to hit you in the stomach as hard as I possibly can yeah yeah do it do it I said no 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 Ben I'm really going to do it are you really sure that you want this yeah 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 do it do it so I mean, I probably only weighed, you know, 140 pounds at the time, but, you know, I'm I'm a male. I've got some muscle mass somewhere in my body. So I I threw my arm back, kind of like a baseball pitcher. I got my whole sort of body into it, and I hit him as hard as I possibly could in my stomach. And um, he walked away shortly after that. But about a half an hour later, I uh, was sitting there at my game, and he was walking by. And he had both hands sort of on his stomach and this real sort of sickly look on his face. And um, I got up and he said, he said, you really hit me hard. I said, I- I'm sorry, Ben, you-, you asked me to, that really hurt.
0: It's <laughs> <laughs> funny. So it's good. Good to hear that he's human. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, mentioning, uh, mentioning how strong he is. I, I just remember watching him play one minute chess. I mean, He's, mm. like there's like a physicality to how fast he would move the pieces and in this oh, is not online oh, oh brother pilot.
1: oh absolutely he and i and um uh, uh vivek Rao and um jim risitano uh patrick wolf you know we had great one minute sessions mm. but i think ben was just slightly the fastest um, really incredible speed. <clears throat> Once we were playing with a uh, a Kaisha clock, this was the only digital clock that existed at the time. And Ben and I played uh, 60-something moves in a one-minute game. Maybe that's not unusual, but uh, we were able to check it with a clock afterwards.
0: Yeah, everything gets colored now by everyone playing one minute online where you can easily have 100-move games. But yeah, I mean in those days and i think uh i don't know it might be more common now for the clocks to not tick down when you hit them whereas be- mm. whereas before i think that uh yeah that was not easy and yeah i was wondering immediately my mind went to like if you were using one of those jurger clocks or whatever to play one minute because they didn't they didn't withstand a beating very well
1: uh no no they they didn't uh, there was only one time that that yasser Played one minute with us. You know, he's several years older than we were, but we. Afterwards, you called them Siirwan rules because we we'd never heard this before. Yeah, Yasser said, "I'll play one minute with you um, under the following conditions. Uh, first, has to be touch move. Uh, second, if you hit if you knock a piece over on the board and hit the clock, you lose. You forfeit immediately. Wow. And uh, I can't remember the third rule. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, more customarily, you just have to fix the piece. But
1: um. oh, 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 if you move before your opponents hit the clock, then you lose. Oh, okay. That was a third. Yeah, yeah. You know, Sengel Rushevsky would make a move and then hit his opponent's side of the clock just to get the opponent to move and, and forfeit it under those rules, but I, I didn't do that.
0: Okay. Another uh, unflattering story of, of Rushevsky. <laughs> oh, and that, that was undeserved, that one. Okay, um, so so Stu, I want to I want to segue to talk about your decision to retire, um, because uh, we have a few Patreon questions from that. But first, we're going to take a break to hear from our friends at uh, Chessable. If you're enjoying hearing some chess history from I am Stuart Rachels, then Chessable.com has some good news for you. My Great Predecessors Part 5 by GM Gary Kasparov is finally on Chessable. This one covers strictly GM Viktor Korchnoi and legendary former world champion GM Anatoly Karpov, Kasparov's main rival of course. There's great historical context. Of course as Stuart and I discussed in this interview there's tons of variations, but that makes it all the more important that you have a way to to play through the moves without just using a chess set and chessable.com has you covered there it's on sale through july 19th so go to chessable.com and check it out so Stu, you've got so many amazing stories in this book and your enthusiasm for chess your love for chess really shines through and you even say at the beginning that that you you love chess and uh, explicitly in the first chapter or the preface. Um, But uh, you walked away. And uh, in fact, um, Mike Klein, um, another friend of mine who wrote a profile of you in 2008 for uh, Chess Life magazine, um, actually pointed me. You mentioned um, Vivek Rao. He profiled you, Vivek Rao, and uh, GM Tal Shaked, who's another grandmaster Mm -hmm. who walked away. And you mentioned in that article that you felt like or that your your trainer boris kogan said at some point that maybe you didn't love chess enough so and i know that the chess world was different then but how do you sort of square that like what was your principal reason for retiring and were you was it strictly business or was it more of a from the heart decision
1: uh, well yeah to explain uh, boris's comment uh he said yeah you said, you know your problem is you don't love chess and you know i was you know, 22 years old when I heard this, and I was just sort of embarrassed. Uh, but what he was really talking about was, I didn't like studying openings. And if you don't like studying openings, then the the life of a chess professional is not not for you. It's uh, it's a hard life being a chess professional. And one thing that uh, you know breaks my heart is that my impression is if you're not one of the top 10, 15 players, it's very hard to make a living. And, you know, you've, you've got these players, uh, I don't know, maybe Shirov is one now. They're still just extraordinarily good, but they dropped off, you know, that, that list of, uh, you know, the, the top 15. And so, you know, they're just, you know, slugging it out and, uh, you know, Swisses in Europe, and you know, finding students, and it's uh, it, it asks a lot of a person, and uh, is not rewarding to many people, other than uh, the world champion.
0: Yeah, and I one thing in watching American Gambit that really hearing uh, even Patrick Wolf, who of course has gone on to uh, to be quite successful in the financial world, um, he had. I felt like a pretty mature perspective about it when they interviewed him during that, and that got me remembering. I mean, it's still the case now, what you say, that if you're trying to make a living just from playing and you're not in the top 20, mm-hmm. you're basically probably won't even be able to support yourself. Um, but it was even more stark then. I mean, I remember grandmasters uh, just often were penniless. So was it even a hard decision for you at that time?
1: Um, it wasn't hard because I fell in love with the study of philosophy. And so I, I kind of moved on to that. Now, in, in the, uh, the one thing that I, I envy about the chess world as compared to the professional world that I was in, in the world of professors, is that um, professors don't have ratings. Yeah. And so therefore, <laughs> everyone thinks that they're, you know, a strong grandmaster. <laughs> there's there's no checking of the egos uh, in, in in chess. You really don't have to have an ego. You you have a rating, and so that's how good you are.
0: Yeah, a true meritocracy. One increasingly rare. Um, so we've got two related questions from the Patreon mailbag. I think that that your stories do really really struck a chord with people because I mean I think for for people like myself um, to be that good at chess is just a dream. So. Um, I certainly understand your decision, um, but I'll, a lot of people, I think, just are looking for even a little more color. So we'll start with one from friend of the show, Jan Peter Schmidt. And Jan actually mm-hmm. he has a few questions embedded in here, and they're real. Um, they're tough questions, but I did send them to you in advance. So, um, be curious to hear your answer. So Jan says, if your chess career had taken place in this era with the internet boom and mega sponsors like Rex Singfeld, would you have opted for a career as a professional chess player or still decided to become a philosopher? Number two, for which spot on the, I love this one for which spot on your chess ranking list, would you be willing to exchange your successful academic career? EG top 10, top 20, uh, top five. And three, comparing the career of a chess professional and university academic, what do you envy chess professionals for, which you just answered a little bit? What makes you happy about your job that you would miss as a chess professional?
1: Yeah, those are very tough questions. And I I, I don't want to.
0: I was just going to say, Jan should host this podcast. They're amazing questions. Yeah,
1: I I don't mean to shirk them. The question of of how good I would have to be uh, to give up my other career. In a way, I I don't know the answer to that myself. It would just have to have uh, arisen. Um, you know, I, I would have learned that about myself if I'd gotten better. When I when I played in the interzonal in 1990, it was an easy decision to play in it because it was in the summer, so I didn't have to uh, miss school. Uh, and I I remember thinking, okay, if I made the candidates matches, then I would take a year off of school. Like like that that would do it. And you know, if I'd been as you know as good as uh, you know Komsky or or Anand or, or these kind of guys, and you know I had been successful and gotten into candidates matches, uh, maybe I, I would have become a, a professional player. But I I, I do want to emphasize uh, something I said a few minutes ago, which is I just did not want to study openings uh, for hours every day, and you know I can. Um, I can brag all I want about my talent and that sort of thing, but to get, you know, to the top 20 in the world, you've really got to work your butt off.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and of course in the engine age, the nature of studying openings has changed a little bit, but the, the, the glaring need for memorization certainly, certainly hasn't was it, was that your objection to it? Just having to memorize these reams of analysis?
1: Well, it wouldn't be so much memorization
0: because it, at for the
1: level I got to, uh, you know, you're looking at a lot of middle games. You know, you're trying to improve on things. Um, there were just uh, a lot of things I learned about chess, but uh, but <laughs> opening study was not was not one of them.
0: Yeah. Um. And what makes you happy about your job that you would n- miss as a chess professional? Your current job.
1: Um, sure, I guess the stability of it. Um, you know, having you know colleagues that you see during the week. Uh, I mean, I mean, uh, nice thing about being a chess professional is uh, you have such freedom of, of how you use your time. But it's uh, a little structure is probably a healthy thing.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And when you look at someone like your friend, uh, Ben Feingold, who, of course, um, has ha- has had his, um, you know, lived in various places and had varying degrees of success uh, working as a chess uh, professional, you know, primarily these days doing streaming and stuff like that, but also do- giving a lot of lectures and doing and, pl- classes and, he, and he, lessons. He's
1: got, and he's got a great club in Atlanta.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was going to say he's doing great right now, but that hasn't always been the case. How how does a life like that, which would probably, I mean, you, you I think you peaked around number 150 in the world. Is that right?
1: Uh, yeah, a, a, a generous assessment is 150, yeah.
0: Okay, we'll take it. Um, so how would a life like that be for you? Like, Would you enjoy, I mean, obviously you're a teacher as it is, so would you enjoy teaching chess and uh, doing the sort of um, – presentation that ben and many others are doing these days
1: well ben has a love for chess i mean kind of like a starving starving artist kind of situation i mean it's it's what he wants to do all the time and so um so he can have he can have a good life um doing that in, in terms of teaching chess. um this is maybe a little too harsh, but I, I remember Larry Christensen once saying, um, I wouldn't mind teaching chess, but frankly, I'd rather work at the car wash. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So, you know, teaching is really very different from playing. And um, uh, one, sorry, Ben, I'm, I'm, I'm rambling a little bit. This is, you know, I'm 50, right? Got to give me a break.
0: No, you're doing great. But
1: uh, <laughs> uh, but you might say, like, I, I spent the first... 20 years of my life uh you know learning how to play chess and then the next 20 learning how to write and so i i think uh being a chess author is, is probably the best thing for me now so, I, I, I like I, I like working on puzzles too i've, I've had some puzzles on chess base, and i i have a thousand puzzles in my file that no one has seen but anyway
0: wow so are you creating studies or um how how do the puzzles how did how do you make them
1: yeah, they're, they're not as good as, like, your studies by Troitsky or Kasparian, uh, these really fantastic, fantastic studies, uh, but I had this idea to take each move, each chess move, and there's, um, uh, let's see, 835 or something like that, distinguishable moves in, in algebraic notation, if you if you don't, um, sorry about the technicality of this, if you, if you don't differentiate based on file or rank, you know, like rook AD1, you know, knight 3 to E4. And so I set about trying to find the fastest game that could end with checkmate in each of those moves. Oh, it's, it's 840. Hmm. Yeah, so I actually have files with uh, 840 problems. And a, um, a computer expert uh, in Canada named Francois Labelle um, looked at all the chess games up to seven moves for each side. And so he found all the, all the checkmates that were available in those sort of 14-ply. Uh, th- this is someone who, who, who ran his computers for months. Wow. <clears throat> anyway, that, that's just an aside. I think, uh, I think players will be more interested in my book than in my Strange Problems.
0: It's fun though. I mean, it shows, it shows your enthusiasm. You know, you're still, there's still an allure to the mystery of chess that, that, that demonstrates.
1: Oh, I, I, I think problem composition is just amazing. I just, I just can't believe what people have come up with.
0: Yeah, it, it is. Uh, it is something. Um, So we've got another question relating to your retirement, Stu, and this one also I think is um uh, quite a good question. So it's from a uh, supporter of the podcast, Aaron Holloway Nahum. Um Mm-hmm. And it's, um, I'll just go ahead and read it. He says, thanks so much for the book, Stuart. I hugely enjoyed the games and learned a lot in researching your career, but I was particularly struck to see you retired with two GM norms. To an outsider, it seems like such a precipice to finish on. As philosopher, chess player, you may already be aware of in a recent article, GM Jonathan Rousen wrote on the subtle joys of underachievement, where he writes, and this is in quotes from GM Rousen, well, I did not fulfill my chess potential, and it still hurts to think that. I cannot shake the notion that if I could have climbed higher in the status charts, perhaps even top 50, and rarely does a day go by when I don't briefly think about that unlived life. There are limits, though. I knew I could not go all the way to the summit in the games against world champions and their contenders. My inferiority was palpable. They had consistently better and quicker judgment and more fundamentally none of my doubts about playing chess as a worthwhile way of life. So my regret is suffused with relief. I might've climbed a little higher. Yes, but I could so easily have squandered my life as a hungry ghost hostage by 32 pieces and 64 squares forever. And then unquote. And then Aaron says, the one thing I miss from the book and I'd like to hear about are those last games and days. How did you make the decision to retire? Um, And did you think about, and not to harp on it, but with, with two GM norms. And did you think about going back?
1: Uh, Yeah, Quite a lot of good, uh, good questions in there. Uh, one thing, um, uh, I played a good bit of blitz with Anand, and once you've done that, you realize you will never be world champion. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, he's uh, he's touched by God, as my friend Andrew Metric uh, said. My decision to quit chess was kind of like my decision to write this book, which is I never made such a decision. (laughs) When I played at my last uh, chess event, I didn't think of it as my last chess event. But by that point, I was in graduate school, and I was just immersed in something else. My one, um, I don't know, regret is not quite the word because I don't regret any of my decisions, but I I really wish I'd become a grandmaster. Yeah, And about half the time that people refer to me, they call me a grandmaster, which is (laughs) nice in a way, but it's also...
0: (laughs) Yeah, I had to double-check it. When I first saw that your book was coming out, of course, I I remember you from the Chess Life cover. I was As Feingold pointed out, I was a kid then, um, and I, I was sure you were a grandmaster. I had to look and look again. Yeah,
1: well, I I will say I'm one norm short, but it would be a very difficult norm to get. Uh, For one thing, I was a very consistent player, and so um, I didn't have many disasters, and I didn't have many triumphs. And, you know, you need quite a triumph to, to get a GM norm.
0: Yeah, that that makes sense. Although, I mean, obviously, I think if you had continued to play, at, you know, in your early twenties, it would have just been a formality. But, but yeah, now it might be a, a, a higher hurdle. Although, you know, I don't, I don't know how those blitz games on ICC went. I don't know what your current chest strength is. Um, but I, I, well, was, I sorry, I, go ahead.
1: Yeah. Oh no, I I just also say uh, I had very few norm opportunities when I played. There was really not much in the United States. Uh, for someone to do to get norms.
0: Yeah. That's, that's not to be underestimated now with St. Louis's invitationals and the Charlotte chess clubs invitationals, it's, it's a little more possible. Also Mm -hmm. travel is not as uh, expensive as it used to be. So yeah, that presents more opportunities for sure. Um, So you, uh, it's surprising to me that it wasn't sort of a conscious decision to retire. So, were were you ever close to coming? Did you ever almost play in another tournament in the subsequent years?
1: No, you know, it's, uh, for you know, for several years I was you know working on a PhD in philosophy and really, uh, really loving that. And then once you're out of the culture. It's um, there's a real divide there. It, it, it'd be a very big step for me to play in something, and um, I'll mention one thing. This is a little a little embarrassing to admit, but if I if I played again, I don't think that I would um, put my classical rating at risk because I'm I'm not a grandmaster, but I am over 2600, and so that's just a little point of pride for me, and of course. You know, I'm twenty six hundred five. It would be you know easy as can be to you know, lose six points in an event, shaking off the rust.
0: Yeah, the, that makes sense. I mean, it's you know, I would I would like to stay over twenty six hundred as well. Um, so, <laughs> so being that you you've kind of pushed aside the internet blitz, when's when's the last time you played a chess game, like even a, a casual blitz game?
1: Well, I. I have actually played on the internet pretty recently. I've, I've got a friend, a, a talented player named Joel Friedman, uh, in Huntsville, Alabama, and it, it was his birthday, so uh, we played a we played a a, a bunch of blitz games. If, if if I had a friend, you know, just in my hometown, Tuscaloosa, Alabama, uh, who was a grandmaster, I'd probably play blitz all the time. But um, yeah, yeah, my. My last, what you would call an event, was just 1998, a blitz event when these things were unrated, and uh, I I beat Judith Polgar, and uh, you know would have won the tournament if if Max Vlougi hadn't won every single game.
0: <laughs> yeah, strong blitz player.
1: <laughs> so I, I I still think of myself as as not bad at blitz
0: glad to hear and that hearing you talk about playing you, obviously you sort of express an affinity for in person you know board and pieces blitz as opposed to online and that that made me think of the story you told of uh driving to St Louis in 2017 when Kasparov came out of retirement so um, and you, you kind of poignantly mentioned that if, even though he, you made an impression on him when you were a kid, he didn't necessarily recognize you or, or acknowledge you. And that's not really what you were looking for. But what was the overall experience like of, uh, seeing this chess world, seeing this beautiful chess club and say, I'm sure you ran into some people you knew. What, what was that trip like stu?
1: uh, it was a great pleasure. I, am. Um... I hadn't seen Anand in, in 20 years uh and uh, well over t- over 20 years and at the time I had a beard which I usually uh, don't have and I uh Anand was giving an interview after this event was over and you know he done well in the event and, and I was sort of waiting outside for uh for him to come out and sort of see if he recognized me and he he came out and he looked at me and in about one second, he said, Oh, Stuart, how are you? I'm sorry. It took me a long time to recognize you. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> it's a perfect. And I thought, story.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When, when your brain works that quickly, I guess a second or two is, is a long time.
0: Yeah, there've been, there've I, been... yeah. Oh, go ahead, Ben. Oh, I was just going to say there've been a lot of sort of similar stories of the, the computer like brain of Anand and him remembering some, some, uh, event you know he played some kid in a simul and he remembers him i think it was uh i think it was gm michael brown who told that story but anyway sorry go go ahead
1: oh no no i i like those stories you, you have to be a little skeptical of them not that the things that are said aren't true but i mean Anand or anyone else might remember um a few games you know that they played in you know 1981 uh, but most of them, they would have forgotten, like everyone else. <clears throat> I, I, I think the best story of chess players' memories I've ever heard that was a firsthand story uh, was, I believe Alan Kaufman told me this, of the um, uh, Schools, that before Fisher's match with Spassky, he had this book that, that was just called The Red Book. It was a book of Spassky's games. It was in Russian. And there were several hundred games in it. And you could tell Fisher any number from one to, you know, 450 or however many games there were. And then he could tell you the entire game.
0: Man. Yeah. <laughs> nothing, nothing surprises <laughs> me with Fisher stories, but that that's crazy. Yeah. That,
1: yeah. That, that's a good one. And of course he, he knew all the analysis in the book, which wasn't too much analysis and then his own improved analysis. So, you know, when Fisher's openings were in trouble early in his match with Spassky, so he just started playing everything. And, of course, he didn't have to uh, wonder, you know, what Spassky would do against the, you know, Alkheim's defense or something like that.
0: Yeah, and I'm I'm actually reading my 60 most memorable games. I'm, my 60 memorable games. I always call mm-hmm. them my most mm-hmm. memorable right now. Yeah, and it's, um, it's, I mean, uh, similar to what we were talking about earlier, I occasionally turn the engine on when I'm looking at the games, and not everything holds up, but there's still just a sparkle to the games that, that there's that's something to behold. Well, you know, I think
1: Fisher's analysis holds up really extraordinarily well. Uh, in uh, in Roth's book on Fisher, I just noticed he didn't have a lot of corrections of Fisher's analysis. And, um, well, I, I, I stopped being self-conscious about the computer's correcting me when I read the story that uh, when Smithloff was old, and you know Smyslov, you know, m- may be the greatest in-game player in chess history. Uh, he was in despair at the you know early Fritz program, where he had put a, a game against uh, in-game he played against Sevall, and Smyslov considered it one of his best in games, and the computer just ripped it to shreds. Right. <laughs> so yeah, I, I mean, I mean, basically, if 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 my 60 memorable games is not just full of errors it shows that fisher was an incredibly wonderful analyst
0: yeah no no surprise um and that calls to mind one thing another thing i was impressed with in your in your books too and is um you've got a lot of references to well-known and classic chess books i mean obviously to get to your level as a kid i'm sure you were reading um, your fair share of books but even beyond that you know more recent books by uh, I know you're you've met and are a big fan of John Nunn's and Jenna Sosanko and um, so was all of this reading sort of in conjunction with the uh, with the book project or have you just been reading about chess all along?
1: Well, I, I read a ton when I was a player, and then I got back into it. You know, ten years ago when I started, um, you know, writing the book.
0: Okay, yeah, and for for listeners. There's a lot of great chess in the book, and also at the end you give a long list of book recommendations. So we don't have to belabor the point. But if you were to to pick one or two, Stu, what it, what would be your your desert island chess books?
1: Oh, well, I'm glad I have a copy of my own book here, so I can. Uh... <laughs> um. Okay. Well, I, I wanted to say that uh, Andy Soltis' recent book, Tall Petrosian Spassian Korchnoi, is one of the greatest chess books ever written. Um, I think I would take a, a, a book of Tall's the Desert Island, maybe Life and Games.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, now Tall, he's, he's a fellow who never edited a sentence in his entire life. <laughs> and so... You know, as a writer there's plenty to criticize, but it just doesn't matter because uh, he has such a great personality and, and you feel like, you know, he, he's talking right right to you. Let's see. John Nunn's book, Secrets of Practical Chess, I think is maybe pound for pound the, the, mo- the, the best instructive book I've read. Uh, Nunn is, uh, he's such a good writer. And, um, you know, he has such a deep understanding of chess. You know, he's number 10 in the world, and um, he's written deeply on, on so many subjects. Let's see. Fisher's book he mentioned. Well, what, what, what can I tell you, Ben? There's, there's lots of good stuff out there.
0: Yeah. And, and again, we've got to leave something for the listeners to actually go buy your book. I can't, can't, rec- <laughs> can't recommend it highly enough. And you also have a little compendium of uh, chess advice, sort of uh, principles of play. Um, that's, I don't know if you've been sort of up on this debate, but there's um, uh, mixed opinions amongst the sort of chess writers and chess players about how useful rules of thumb are. Wh- what do you think?
1: Well, I think they're very helpful, but they have to be learned alongside concrete positions. I, I, I'd make an analogy that the way that people learn science is not through memorizing definitions or formulas; it's through uh, applying concepts to the real world, and sort of that—that's how your brain learns them.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I, I had a chess author on. I don't know if you've had a chance in all of your reading to read. Uh, I am Willie um, Willie Hendrick. He wrote a book um, called "Move First, Think Later," where that was sort of the idea uh-huh. that that he espoused that that you need to have. Um, it's the really the chess that you remember, not the words.
1: Well, yeah. Although, like in writing this book, I realized that there's a thought I should have had many, many times as a player. And for some reason, I don't think I did. And and that is when you uh, have the ability to swap pieces, ask yourself, <laughs> which piece is better, my piece or my opponent's piece? You know, who's, whose rook is more active, you know, who's whose bishop has more potential. And that's, that seems like it's uh just common sense, right? You're going to swap pieces. So that's the question. Who's got the better piece? Uh, I think it would have helped me if I'd uh, thought about that question explicitly.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And hearing you talk about that makes me wonder, of course, you reference your trainer, Boris Kogan, many times in the book. um, And you generally speak pretty highly of him. Mm -hmm. but, But one thing you don't talk about that much is what you guys actually did. Uh, so what what was his approach as a teacher what, what was your, what were your learning methods?
1: Yeah so he did he did two things first the the deep analysis of my games and then secondly he had uh, his own personal notebooks. He had a notebook with combinations and a notebook with in-game studies and um, if I may say so he, he stopped showing me the combinations because I was too good at them. but then the in-game studies I almost never, could solve. It's uh, it, it, it's hard to convey, but um, like when I, when I was working with Boris, especially when I was first working with him, I, I felt like he was as good as a world champion because I had never encountered this kind of subtle understanding of position evaluation. And so this is something that I really could not have gotten out of a book. And you know, I I say at one point in the book that uh, because of Boris, I eventually became a, a weak, uh, strong player. But if I hadn't worked with him, I would o- I would only become a dangerous potter. <laughs> it, it's yeah, it's like I would have gotten very good at kind of a, a crude version of thinking about chess. Uh, it, was, it was really really uh I, I, okay. I'll I'll tell you just one quick story. So I had a. A short draw was Lev Albert in the last round of the 1987 U.S. Open. And uh, I hit the black pieces. It was a Catalan. And then, you know, when Boris and I looked at this game, Boris said, well, of course, you're a little worse in this position. And I said, well, I don't, I don't think so. You know, I think I'm completely equal. And so Boris and I then played it out. And eventually he won my pawn on uh, B as in Boris 4, which he had told me that to eventually become a weakness. And we played it out again, and he again won that pawn in about thirty moves. And having done that, I now looked at the uh, original final position, and I saw it as better for white. I-, I saw that pawn as a weakness, and you know, I had no clue that it was a weakness before.
0: Hmm. The, yeah, that's that's pretty interesting. Um, and. Were you able to extrapolate that to to other positions, or was that just sort of it just gave you a a, a better understanding of that one Catalan position?
1: Uh, you know, you can't extract you can't extrapolate other positions, but it's a complete mystery as far as I know how the brain does this. Uh, one of your one of your excellent uh, listeners and, and benefactors asked me about uh, the role of calculation in the strong players' play. And I was thinking about that and calculation is important, you know, lots of things are important, uh, but really judgment is more important. E- even, even with the engines, what they do is more judgment than calculation. I mean, it sounds like a strange thing to say, but if, um, you know, if, if looks at, you know, a billion positions, or, or you know, a, a hundred million variations, very few of them are going to end in checkmate, and so all the other variations, they have to have an evaluation attached to the end. And so evaluating positions and then just sort of coming up with good candidate moves. And the way you do this is that like you find them in your brain, but you have no idea how they got there. <laughs> hmm. I, I always found uh, improving at chess to be a mystery because I never got the same positions that I you know, saw in magazines and books. And I just kind of figured, well, I, I'm growing up and my, my brain is developing, and so I'm getting better at chess. But I, I never understood how it happened.
0: Yeah, well, you were pretty immersed in it, it seems.
1: Uh, yeah, I, I, I would have had a much different experience, not only if the Internet had existed when I was a kid, but also the ability to look at, uh, uh, look at chess books you know, digitally. Yeah. I, I, I still read paper, but it's clear to me that digital is the, the right way to read them. I, I never read chess books seriously because I would never get out of board. So I just open up books, I'd look at a diagram, follow the moves for as long as I could or wanted to, and then look at some other diagram. So <laughs> to actually see the moves being played on a board, not bad.
0: Yeah, I definitely appreciated reading your book, uh, that, that it was on forward chess rather than Kindle, because sometimes I, I use both. But your book was was meaty enough. The the calculation that you referenced was significant enough that I was glad to be able to play through the moves.
1: Oh, yeah. Just thank you, They're New and Chess Press. They did a great job.
0: Yeah. And so you mentioned the question from Jeff Anderson, the only uh, question from uh, my Patreon supporters that... That we had not gotten to yet. So one of them was just uh, Jeff, as you mentioned, had said that he thinks one of the things that sets elite players apart is calculation. But he also says uh, he seems to remember a story about a car trip once when you were a kid, where you surprised the occupants with your chest visualization skill. Do, do you know what okay, Jeff is referring um- to there?
1: Yes, and I am, I am bewildered as to how he knows that. Do I know Jeff?
0: Well, I think, he's uh, around, I think he's around your age, so he may have heard. I mean, probably, I would guess you're one degree apart at, at most. Th-
1: this, is, this is a story from 1978. It's before I had ever played a, a rated chess game. But my family was hosting Larry Christensen, who was doing a final tour, you know, a church's fried chicken tour uh, around the U.S., and Christensen was about 22 years old, and we were just in the car coming back from uh, dinner, and uh, Christensen said he'd, he'd won a you know, very short game. Chuck made a very short number of moves uh, in, in his previous son. And so he told us the game. It's, uh, he was white. It was uh, E4, uh, G6, B4, Bishop G7, Knight C3, uh, sorry, Knight F3. Uh, d6 bishop c4 and now the guy played you know knight d7 and so white plays bishop takes f7 check king takes f7 knight g5 check now the guy knew just king forward to f6 because otherwise knight e6 will win his queen and then after King f6 queen f3 is, is mate and you know i was uh, i was barely nine years old and uh, you know you know he probably never used a chess clock and um, didn't have a rating, and I said, uh, "I said, oh, nice game." And my my father said, "Well, son, you know, you shouldn't pretend, blah 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 blah." And then I I repeated back the moves to the game. Now, I wonder if I really did it correctly. You know, if you're if you're in that situation and you get some of the moves right, people start you know applauding you maybe before that <laughs> you've done everything, but uh, I'm pretty sure that's the story he was referring to.
0: Wow. that That's impressive. And was this in algebraic or descript- descriptive? Do you remember the story or have you just re- remember being told it later? Do you remember what well, no, no, no. happened?
1: Uh, this one I remember, although I, I don't remember whether I believed I had gotten all the moves right, uh, but it was, he definitely uh, told it in descriptive because I, I remember him sort of having to uh sort of think a little harder as he was <laughs> saying quanda right. King Four quanda King four uh, I asked Christensen about this a few years later, and unfortunately he didn't remember uh meeting me or my family at all but i I sure remembered him huh
0: yeah, yeah, and I think i just have i just think I just have one more question for you, Stuart, which is so you're sort of in a unique club of uh top players who've retired, i mean some. Uh, better known than others, but for some reason, I feel like your name gets mentioned a fair amount. and of course um, there there's been others. We mentioned Tal Shaked, Josh Waitskin, and then from from your generation, Patrick Wolf, David Norwood, who you singled out as an amazing calculator. Um, mm-hmm. are, are you in touch with any of those people? Like how do you maintain friendships with people, whether they be retired from chess like you or still active?
1: Uh, some people, I, I, I would like to be in touch with more people, uh, than I am. Uh, Ben have You mentioned, uh, we're still good friends. Uh, Adam leaf. I'm in touch with some, uh, Andrew metric. I'm in touch with some, um, but yeah, I'd like to have a reunion
0: sometime. Yeah, that would, I'm sure that would be a lot of fun for you. Let let me,
1: let me, if if I may indulge myself just to say something to your listeners. Sure. I can tell them one thing about this book, which is I worked really hard on it.
0: <laughs> it's evident. It, yeah, it,
1: it, 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 I, I I would almost be embarrassed to say how many drafts, probably every single page of the book went through, and and then when it, when I was finally almost done with it, um, I had to cut about 150 pages, which which almost always makes a book better.
0: <laughs> yeah, but it's still so, hard hard to do, right? Hmm, but it. Anyway, it,
1: it was such a joy writing this book. I'm, you know, so glad maybe someone will, will read it now or read read some of it.
0: Yeah, and it, it, your joy shines through. I mean, it, it's a it's a pretty funny book. You've you've got some good one-liners in there, and, and the chess is is significant. I like the line where where you're talking about classical chess, and you say, and this game was classical chess, or as we used to call it, chess. <laughs>
1: Uh, that's right. Yes, I'm. I'm still a believer that slow time controls are the are the best measure of one's strength.
0: Yeah, it'll be interesting. Everything's speeding up so much, but with the World Championship in particular, I, I, it, it would be hard for me to give that up. I mean, I love the drama of the matches.
1: Oh no! Nah, the, the fact is, I, I do as well as a fan. the the only The only thing that 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 bothers me about chess right now is the damn Berlin Rui Lopez. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I really think that someone has made a good suggestion that maybe one rule of chess should be changed, like when you castle, that you can move your rook over if, if the squares are vacant. <laughs> so so in, the, in, the, in, the, in the Rui Lopez with white castles, his rook can be on E1, so damn it, black cannot play knight takes <laughs> E4. That's,
0: that's funny. I mean, a lot of people have started playing D3 against it now, so I, it at least doesn't go to the Berlin endgame. But, yeah, it's, um doesn't lead to the, the most um, fiery positions even then.
1: No, what, what Joel Benjamin said to me, oh, uh, another person I, I, I keep in touch with some, uh, Joel said, yeah, nowadays players play D4 when they play for a win and E4 when they play for a draw or you know when they're playing it safe. And I'm like, oh, God, this is so totally backwards.
0: <laughs> yeah, it, 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 things have changed. Um, well, Stuart, again, I, I recommend your book wholeheartedly for anyone listening and thinking about getting it. Um, I think New in Chess also has a free excerpt on their website that listeners can check out. Um, so uh, do you do you like to share your contract, contact information or would you rather keep that private, Sue?
1: Oh, um, uh, no, I, I, I don't mind sharing it. My um, The uh, email address that I check is, is my first and last name at hotmail.com. And this is basically an email account I have because I got it in 1998 and never changed it. But there you go.
0: Okay, yeah. And I'll, I'll link to the email address. Uh, but yeah, hopefully um, maybe a uh, couple of the people you mentioned that you'd like to hear from will uh, will be able to track you down. I mean, certainly it's not so hard with this book. So you mentioned, uh, your other projects. So do you, do you think you have another chess book in you in another 10 years too?
1: Oh yeah, it'll be, it'll be faster than that. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm writing a book on fortresses now because I don't think this book has been written. Uh, I mean, it's not going to be as, you know, as personal and as wide ranging as, as my current book, but, um, you know, I'll I'll try to do a competent job.
0: That's great. Yeah that that is a that does strike me as a good topic. And i certainly having I'll, I'll look forward to that one. Having enjoyed this one so much. Um, so anything else, Stu, before we let you go?
1: Uh, I just really enjoyed talking to Ben. Thanks so much for having me on your podcast.
0: Oh, it was my pleasure. Thanks so much, and thanks for this great book. Um, again, as as I mentioned to you before, I, I, it's my favorite kind of chess book. So it was a real pleasure to read.
1: All right. Well, well. Don't don't forget to write me an Amazon review now.
0: Yeah, I'll I'll do that. Um, I always <laughs> this is a bit of an aside, but I always feel like a bit of an imposter when um I didn't get it from Amazon. I I I always like to be a verified purchase. Um, which unfortunately, uh-huh. since I bought on Forward Chess, I won't necessarily be. But I will gladly write you a glowing <laughs> review. All right. Take care Ben. Okay, Stu. Have a good day. Right, Bye. 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 Special thanks, as always, to my producer, Matthew Passy, and thanks to those who continue to help spread the word about Perpetual Chess. Positive reviews on podcast platforms and YouTube help people discover the show, as does telling a friend or sharing it on social media. Speaking of which, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at BennyFishal1 or join the Perpetual Chess Facebook group and continue the conversation about the latest interview. But most of all, of course, I wanna thank those who provide financial support to the show, especially right now with so much disruption going on in the world. Most of all, I wanna thank Chessable for sponsoring the show and to everyone who kicks in via PayPal or the Perpetual Chess Patreon page to help sustain and improve Perpetual Chess. And without further ado, I would like to give special thanks to the following people and entities, Chessable, Quality Chess Books, the Capital City Chess Club, Apprentice Twitch Channel, Andrew Alharjri, Andrew Bach, Austin Clough, Benjamin Porteau, Bill Sigler, Kathy Carr, Chad Oliver, Chris Flanagan, Dan O'Hanlon, Danny Davidson, David Driver, I am Dimitri Schneider, I am Eric Rosen, Farah Sawaf, Gary Foreman, Greg Nattel, Greg Shahadi, Guven Manet, James Kennedy, Jens Green, John Jernigan, John Rockefeller, John Cromarty, John MacArthur, Kelly Palmer, Kevin O'Callaghan, Lucio Casada the law officers of Stuart Katz, Michael Kahn, FM Michael Oblin, Mike Zelazny, Moonmaster9000, you recently stopped your pledge, but Perpetual Chess will always love you. The famous Mr. Dodgy, Peter Zhody, Reuven Fisher, Seattle Chess Club, Thomas Stonix, Thomas Tachenko, Todd Bryan of Strong Chess, Todd Kennedy, and I also would like to thank the following people. Aaron Waffler, Ace Vallega, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Pejas, FM Andre Terakov, Dr. Andrew Perry, Aniti Deer, Better Chess Training, Bill Juniper, Bill Moran, Brad and Andy Rosen, Brett howard Lynn Brian Mullis, Chad Hilton, Dr. Charles Snodgrass, Chris Wainscott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Shabrie, Chris Lott, Christopher Wood, I am Christoph Selecki, a.k.a. Chess Explained, Coach J's Chess Academy, Costa Carras, Courtney Fry, Craig Mollin, Daniel Gell, Daniel Ginsburg, Daniel Lucas of U.S. Chess, Daniel Naylor, Dave Saylor, David Blaskocek, David Cramley of Chessable.com, Dalen Shelton, Dirk Decker, Dwayne Edmonds, Ed Daly, Ethan Smith, Ian Mason, I am elect Donnie Ariel, or possible not I am elect, Fox Valley Chess Club, Francis Letart Lavoie, Frank Tortoris M.D., Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Geert Vandervelt, Gerard Barter, Giovanni Russo, Greg Harfst, Han Shu, Harish Srinivasan, Jacob Kovac, Jacques Parry, James Aspinwall, James Banastia, James Murr, Jason Willem, J.D. Chakrabarty, Jeff Anderson, Jeffrey Martello, Yep Holland, Jerry Wells, Jim Ratliff, J.J. Schnad, Dr. John Fallon, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman, John Jeffrey, John McMurtry, Jonathan Slater, Jordan Goodwin, Jose Rodriguez, Justin Gardner, Jen Shahadi, Joe Rocky, John Thompson, Grandmaster Josh Fridell, I.M. Kare Christensen, W.G.M. Katerina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, I.M. Kostya Kovjutsky, Krishna Krishnan, Kyle McAvoy, Larry Ryforth, Laura Beljavsky, Martin Knudsen, Martin Krug, Matthew Passi, Matthew Tedesco of seattlechessmeetup.org, the Mechanics Institute Chess Club of San Francisco, Michael Allard, Miguel Araspidi, Mike Clem, Mr. Mike Shahadi, Mitchell Fabian, Nate Solin, Neil Bruce, Negmat, Malijanov, Olaf Mueller-Michaels, Gian Pascal, Charbonneau, Posse Passinen, Paul Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Swaney, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, Randall Temple, Ricky Grijalva, Richard Hollenbuck Robert Turner Roy Yearwood Ryan Berg The SayChess YouTube Channel Scott Doherty, Scott McKinnon Sebastian Finsterwalder Stefan Roller WGM Tachi of Abrahamian, Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com Tim Seymour Timothy Ha Tom Edsel Tomaz Kolmanich Tony Rotella Tyron Price Vishnu Srikumar Wayne Beam. William Brock, William Juniper, William Hogarth, William Peterson, FM Zhao Cheng of Chess1000.com, and last but never least, Zhivko Stoyanov. Thanks for listening, everyone. Catch you guys soon.
1: Podcast Network.